Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is a thrill to have with us today David Malpass of Encima Global. We can talk of economics. We can talk of the kind of economics he and I hear at the Economic Club of New York. But we must talk today about our economic politics. As Mr. Malpass, a longtime Republican, has agreed to join the economic advisory of Mr. Donald Trump. What exactly are you doing? Are you doing white papers that no one reads in the Trump campaign? Uh, What do you actually do? Hi, Tom. Good morning. Um, There's not a lot of white papers going. What there are is policy development papers. Uh, So you have to think about, uh, as as you go forward with a tax plan, what are the details? As you think about regulatory reform, I've been working some on that. And regulatory reform is a is a giant project. The government's been putting out huge numbers <clears throat> of regulations that then stop right. small business from hiring people. And so how do you get out of that? It's harder than it sounds. You know the economic policy of your grand beleaguered party. Is Mr. Trump's economic in the vicinity of Speaker Ryan's economics? Uh, uh, absolutely. It uh, builds on the need for growth, for a reasonable tax code. Everybody in the Republican Party... Is it a tax code for the rich? Come on, the guy's surrounded by billionaires, and the rap, obviously, from Secretary Clinton, is it's a Trump code for the rich. Push back. Right, she's saying that. But really, he's cutting rates, really, on small businesses, on the the corporate tax rate. U.S. is the highest in the world, and all of the studies show that the incidence of that tax rate falls on workers. And so the goal here, we know the fact, Real median income has been going down in this recovery. That's Mm. unprecedented. And so this is a really, uh, and we know it's the weakest recovery since 1949. So the current policies are absolutely harmful. We know that because we see the results. So you've got to propose changes. Hillary Clinton's not doing that. Donald Trump is doing that. And as you go forward, you'll make the changes work. Uh, One is on taxes. One is on regulatory policy. You've got to change health policy, immigration policy, trade policy, and down the line. Let's bring in Michael McKee in southern Montana. Michael? Good morning, David. I would point out that uh, you're wrong. It's not unprecedented that median incomes are going down. They've been going down since the George H.W. Bush administration. So it's got to be something bigger than just... Uh, call it up. Tom can call it up on on his computer. Tom can call it up on the Bloomberg. But if you look up medium and income since 1988, they've been going down. So I'm I'm wondering, you know, uh, how, why you think they're going down? You're blaming the Obama administration when it's clearly not them. It's a long-term historical trend. Uh, So how do you fix it if you're if you don't have a proper diagnosis? 
Well, I don't think you can if you don't have a proper diagnosis. So the diagnosis that I want to lay out for you is in 2009, 2010, 11, uh, the, we had an administration that talked constantly about the need for tax increases, particularly on businesses. Hillary Clinton even today is proposing to a 4% surtax that would extend to successful small businesses. So that stops in business investment. So what we've seen since 2010 is remarkably low levels of business investment. That's stopping the economy from growing. As you know, I've, I've talked about the problems that the Federal Reserve is buying bonds, uh, and, and that just benefits people who issue bonds. So you've had this huge polarization of the, the, the economy in terms of income, with the income going to rich people and not going to the middle class. That would change under a Trump presidency. The big question everybody has about uh, Trump's economic plan, to the extent that there is one one can decipher, is that he blows a hole in the deficit, uh, anywhere between 6 and $10 trillion. He's refused to raise taxes, so how do you cover that hole? Yeah, you know, a lot of those studies that we see are people that make wild assumptions. We were on TV um, minutes ago, and I said, if, if you assume that Trump doesn't cause business investment, then you're going to get a bad number from his program. The whole point of the program is to get businesses to invest again and hire workers. So if you assume that that doesn't happen, then you're going to blow the deficit. Uh, what, what I think will happen is you'll get lots more growth, more business investment, and that you you will have a uh, a, a fiscal. Uh, accounts for the federal government that are in much better shape than they are now. CBO came out with their midterm uh, right. yesterday, and they're showing nearly a trillion dollars per year. It's it's 850 billion per year added average right. to the fiscal deficit, and that's under current policies, which they're right. basically saying they don't work. The polls are the polls. Whether it's popular voter electoral, we can argue all day about that, and I know it's early uh, before Labor Day and the dash to November. David Malpass, the fact is Governor Romney was not trounced, but hmm. was defeated right. in the second Obama uh, a, a, a election. And now we have Mr. Trump struggling in key battleground states. What is it about the GOP where they can't resonate to get to a good political outcome? Is it their economics? Uh I don't think it's the economics. I think it's how you explain things. So Governor uh, Romney didn't explain things in a way that was attractive <clears throat> to the average, is Mr. Trump average worker. Trump is obviously very important, uh, a popular, with average workers. Uh, and so that's a completely different dynamic from what Romney had. We've got to see okay, how many votes it is. But he's proposing the, quite a different way of raising the, the middle the, class. This is critical. You, I, I'll take your point of average workers. But the fact is, on the way, through Twitter and through outlandish comments, he's ostracized himself and David Malpass's party from, to be, to be kind about it, brown America. How does he flip-flop back to getting marginal, disaffected worker votes? He needs to do that like this week. Exactly right. And that means new language, new <clears throat> ways to explain things. Uh, that, you know, it was a very hard fought primary. So you've got to recognize that that's over and you're going into the general election appealing to a broad base, appealing to Democrats. He's trying to do that explicitly now by saying you're going to be safer, you're going to grow faster, your children are going to have a better chance at a job than under Hillary Clinton. And that should speak mm -hmm. to a lot of voters. 
But Donald Trump has also said deport 11 million people, uh, block immigration from much of the world, uh, and has been characterized by many in uh, the community Tom has talked about as racist. As someone who is advising him, do you own that as well? Uh, how can you do that? Uh, how can you uh, advise somebody who, who speaks like that? <laughs> well, Michael, as you know, I've had a lo long career that's uh, been, been very consistent about wanting everyone's median <laughs> income to go up. That's what I did in the Treasury Department, at the State Department, for all the world, for Latin America, for Africa, for Asia. I want to see people's real median income go up. And that's the opposite of racism. That's, that is the core of how you get prosperity and global uh, progress. And, and tr tr what Trump has pointed out is the trade policies and the immigration policies that are not being enforced right now uh, is, is a mistake for the U.S. We've got to enforce the laws, uh, do it in a humane way. On the trade front, we've got to have better negotiations. Right mm -hmm. now, the negotiations aren't working for the American How workers. Should you convince Mr. Trump is, is, is what many would consider, Mr. Belpass, to be the same voice of his economic policy. Can you convince him to flip and support TPP? No, uh, and look, even now You don't want to support TPP. No, I, and I've written, I've written against it for years. TPP became this giant foreign policy initiative of the U.S. As a, as a, as a way to try to support Japan, our ally, we had... Uh, a, a, a very complex trade negotiation that wouldn't have worked for the American worker. Oh. And even <clears throat> Clinton is saying she's not going to support it, but she'll flip-flop. Uh, uh, that doesn't make sense. David, uh, you engender email like you're on the New York. Pull the microphone close to you. I know, David, it's your first time on <laughs> radio right. as well. I'm a newbie. And many people would say, David Malpass, that Mr. Trump is surrounded by nice, swell guys who he knows from real estate. That is not you. You support a Republican economics and a Republican ethos in politics. Win or lose, what does your party do the fourth Wednesday of November? <laughs> Tom, what I think we have to have is really a new vision of uh, how to create growth and how to get change going on. Uh, the Republican Party has been in, uh, in and out of power for a long time and hasn't maybe taken care of the special interests as much and of the, of, the, uh, uh, of the growth message. Maybe part of it is they've got the right message but aren't winning enough. So one of the things Trump is saying is I'm, I'm actually going to do it. If you, if you make me president, well, I'm going to cause growth-oriented okay. change. That's David, what I want. I, I don't want to predict the election, but if I may assume someone will lose the election, and let's assume that's Mr. Trump for the sake of discussion. How do you pick up the pieces of your, your party economically, given the polarity racially of the present debate? How do you reach out to Latinos and blacks? I think a very hard part of it is how do you deal with a Democratic Party that's super divided and has at its core 
uh, a, a President Clinton who is under co these constant scandals that are really big. You know, I had a high top secret clearance at both Treasury and State Department, and it's inconceivable that those uh, the, that those messages were being put on a personal server. So the country's got to deal with that. Then, as the Republican Party rebuilds itself under your scenario, yeah, I, I think it can. It, the easier job is for the Republicans to pull together and and begin running, uh, continue running on a growth program. There doesn't need to be a change in the Republican vision of where to go. Mm -hmm. There's got to be a change, I think, in how Washington operates. And right. uh, I don't mm -hmm. know how you achieve that oh. if Hillary Clinton's president. That's Tom, that's why I'm I'm working for Trump. He's the one saying, I'm going to change Washington. Hillary is basically saying, I'm going to continue what President Obama has done. And that's meant a declining real median income. Greg Valle from uh, Horizon Investments, one of our uh, favorite uh, political analysts, points out this morning that uh, Republican orthodoxy for decades, including David Malpass, has been free trade and cutting the deficit. And this year, that is the opposite of what the presidential candidate of the GOP wants to do. So what's happened to Republican orthodoxy? Uh, you know, when you when you try to define what those terms mean. So I, I've really been more uh, interested in controlling and restraining federal spending and cutting taxes. So the, the, it, that is the best way to get the national debt as a percentage of GDP to stop going up. So it's a little different than saying deficit cutting uh, as as Republican orthodoxy. It, with regard to trade, we, we got off track. The trade deals got way too big. They're not big. They're not enforceable. They're not being enforced, and they're not working for American so workers. I, in, the, uh, in the time so, we got left, I yeah. want to make this clear, Mr. Malpass, are you stating you're against TPP? I'm, yeah, I'm against TPP, and was from the beginning. As NAFTA was negotiated, it got bigger and bigger and more complex, and then didn't didn't work in the way it was supposed to work. And there's a whole host of okay. reasons complaints. And so TPP would not work for the global interest, for the U.S. interests and workers. It especially okay. wouldn't work. We're out of time. David Malpass, please come back. And congratulations again on your public service. Always valuable to the nation. Mr. Malpass within SEMA Global, and he is aggressively in support of Trump uh, economics. Dominique Constant of Deutsche Bank. Thrilled that he joins us today. We just heard, uh, Dominique, the perils of financial engineering and financial certitude. All of this is based on a bell curve, a Gaussian distribution, and we're learning that there have been black swans along the way, and they've maybe occurred a little more often than we thought. How are we doing? Are there black or gray swans out there? I, I think it's uh, almost possible question to answer in the sense that the biggest fear you have is uh, not not knowing what you don't know and that is the kind of definition I guess of uh, uh, these sort of black swan events. Uh, I think we're very good at uh, sort of uh, understanding uh, the, the problems with what we do know and, right. and various things like that and, and uh, you know there are all sorts of pitfalls uh, out there. I guess well is Jackson Hole one of the pitfalls? Michael McKee's on his uh, way there. You've written on Jackson Hole. Is this a data-dependent Janet Yellen? Well, the Fed seems to be uh, sort of uh, in shift mode. I mean, over the summer, 
there's clearly been uh, some new research being put out by various Fed officials. I think the markets uh, have finished with the idea that the Fed uh, has been data dependent and uh, the data got weaker and therefore they took the Fed pretty much out of the picture in terms of raising rates uh, very much at all over the next couple of years. That's where we sort of are. And the question is, are we in some sort of transition now where the focus is on perhaps having a, a different kind of inflation target, perhaps being concerned about uh, financial stability issues around uh, the, the low for long rate outlook. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be uh, in the background of whatever uh, Janet Yellen talks about and how, how, how you know, far she wants to sort of push down these new avenues. And uh, uh, right now, you know, I think there's a reasonable chance that uh, data dependency is becoming less important. And it's more about defining uh, a new kind of strategy for the Fed in the context of what they're calling the low R-star, the low equilibrium rate for uh, uh, Fed funds. Uh, the market's already got to a lower R-star uh, ahead of the Fed. And so I'm wondering sort of, what do you, what do you trade on? What do you uh, make base your forecasts on? Is it the Fed? Is it your own inflation and growth outlook? Uh, you know, what carries the most weight since uh, the Fed and the markets have diverged by so much for so long now? Well, I think what needs to happen is the Fed, the Fed is, I mean, there the are very few people um, uh, beyond the Fed who, who still don't get it. Uh, but there are some. And uh, unfortunately, I think the Fed has just been very slow in getting it as well. I mean, they, they've taken an awful long time to bring down their estimates of the neutral funds rate to anything close to where the market is. And they're still not there. They still think it's around 3%. So I think there's an opportunity for the Fed. And I don't blame Janet Yellen. I blame some of her colleagues. Um, but I think there's an opportunity for the Fed to actually try and play catch up at least. Uh, and uh, th that would be, for example, to say, look, okay, if we want to raise rates a bit more quickly than the market, at the same time, we're going to recognize that the market has an equilibrium rate uh, that is, uh, that is uh, much lower than they've had, but they will tend to agree with this. And so she can actually work with the dots, if you like. I mean, people don't like to talk about the dots, or the Fed doesn't like to talk about them as a sort of main sort of part of, uh, of how markets uh, should, should react and think. But I think, you know, just really just being aggressive and saying, hey, look, you know, we have no idea uh, when interest rates might sort of get back to what we previously thought were normal levels, but let's just say, you know, we can only probably raise rates to sort of, you know, 2% at, at, at best over the next few years, but at the same time, we'd like to perhaps uh, move a bit more quickly than it's currently priced now, in. Dominic, there is a discussion, um, obviously, I'm going to call it navel-gazing, among economists about orthodox economics and about where theory is going that underpins what we do, and particularly what we do in policy making, what will the new orthodox look like? Um, well, I think the uh, new orthodox going forward should um, basically uh, look beyond some of our sort of standard metrics for uh, how we measure economic welfare, such as growth, and obviously linked to that sort of in inflation. I think one of when we people have this discussion about productivity, and that obviously feeds directly into the GDP, and it's all very disappointing. And we're told that this is obviously sort of a bad outcome. And one of the sort of concepts that I've been playing around with is the idea that uh, the technology boom is obviously doing tremendous things to non-GDP items, such as leisure, uh, and so the idea that basically. Uh, 
uh, our leisure productivity, if you like, that concept is actually uh, uh, improving massively. People are much more efficient with their leisure time, and that doesn't really go into GDP, and that's because a lot of uh, the new technology is, is effectively being given away at marginal cost, which is zero, uh, and therefore uh, it doesn't factor into a lot of the metrics that we look at. It doesn't actually change the uh, necessarily the policymaker reaction function, but it does actually help explain, I think, some of the, uh, the, the, the incongruities that people have in try, trying to understand why this seems to be such a sort of golden age for technology, and yet uh, people feel sort of, at least in the GDP uh, concept, sort of miserable. Uh, but really it's because they're all sitting at home having sort of great, great fun uh, sort of thing on the internet, and, and etc. And I think this goes down the road of something like this French uh, economist Piketty, who was sort of saying in the end you, you end up with sort of all, a lot of concentrations of wealth uh, in very few hands, but not necessarily uh, people being quite as distraught as that might other, otherwise infer. Mm. And I think the transitional phase is, is, is difficult because people suddenly realise that, oh, look, you know, that there's this guy who's earning tonnes of money and has a lot of money, and you may not like that. But I think in a sort of flow concept of welfare, uh, uh, at some point you sort of get used to it and realise that you are actually better off, perhaps, in this new world. Brave new, new, new world. It's either sort of Aldous Huxley or a sort of Orwellian sort of vision where, where we're all <laughs> heading. But it's not necessarily all bad. <laughs> So it's not, not Animal House. Uh, it, it, this is the Robert Gordon argument, The Rise and Fall of American Productivity. is a terrific book. Um, and, and his argument is we are never going to see the kind of productivity gains we saw around the turn of the 20th century again. Do you think we can translate this leisure time productivity increase into some sort of productivity move that will raise living standards? Well, I think it is raising living standards, but we're just measuring living standards in a sort of rather archaic way at the moment. We're trying to measure it in sort of GDP per capita terms, and uh, you know that's sort of inappropriate. I mean, there's there's you know a base, basic economic theory actually gives you great, a great toolkit to try and understand uh, the difference. And obviously, it's consumer surplus. It's the fact that people would be willing to pay for something that they don't have to pay for. <clears throat> or they pay more than they are currently paying for. And that consumer surplus, if it stays with the consumer, obviously adds tremendous welfare to the consumer. If you get it away from the consumer and put it to the producer, then obviously that translates into profit and GDP and productivity as we currently measure it. And uh, I think the idea is uh, we, we need to focus on those welfare concepts, uh, which is much more significant than the GDP, especially now where the cost of actually producing stuff you know, goes down. And and uh, you know, we may not get much of a wage for it, but then you know, maybe you don't need so much of a wage for it if you can sit at home and, and watch movies for free all day long sort of thing. And, and those are the issues, I think, that, that are going to become more and more important. And I think collaborative consumption, by the way, sort of fits into this model as well. The idea that you know, people don't feel they, you know, that there's an awful lot of waste when you sp spend a lot of money buying some stuff and you, you don't use it half the time. And basically the marginal cost to you of kind of you know, sharing that consumption with someone else might be very, very low, and you might sort of give that away, and, and there's, there's that sort of concept there as well, I think. Uh, another concept that is under, uh, not under attack, but under question is uh, the idea of the Phillips curve and whether or not uh, tightening labor markets are actually going to generate inflation again. What do, you th what do you think of that? And let me add in the question of whether you think central banks, central bank policy, can generate inflation. It's been eight years on, we've had extraordinary <laughs> policy, and we have no real inflation to speak of. 
Well, I, I mean, when I've looked at inflation historically, I mean, I've always been struck by the idea that inflation is a sort of rare beast. Uh, and it happens uh, from the supply side and it happens during wars and famines. And you can go back thousands of years where, believe it or not, there is data coming out of countries like uh, uh, Sweden and, and the UK to some extent. And you, you, you see it uh, in a historical context. But it's always fairly brief and supply driven. I think the trouble with, with this generation, and, and I don't mean the sort of, you know, the millennials, but, you know, perhaps you know, our generation or sort of, you know, one, one back, so to speak, is that we saw inflation for the first time pretty much in a completely different context. It was demand-driven, uh, and it was all to do with the breakdown of Bretton Woods, and it was all to do with the, 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 the rise of, of, of the sort of a, the, the unionised labour and the social conflict that you had in the 70s in particular. And uh, that's where the Phillips curve was born. And therefore, <clears throat> I think uh, the Phillips curve is, is sort of dead and buried. I mean, there's no, you know, we're not going to go back to that sort of demand-driven inflation. Uh, and that's why uh, inflation as a concept really, I mean, if we want to go back there, it's, 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 you have to be very purposeful in doing it. And you have to almost you know, do the sort of helicopter man thing. And the, and the heart of this, Dominic, is it's a different economy. The slew rates are different. The rates of change within developing and developed countries are different. Then what is the technology transmission through productivity? You told me earlier you don't think productivity is a measurement issue. Then how is technology diffused across capital, labor, and a total uh, factor productivity? Uh, the answer is we don't know. I mean, we just don't know what technology is doing, do we? Yes, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's uh, no, we, we we don't we don't know. I mean, I I, I think all, the best, the closest you can get to is 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 try and sort of. I mean, we, what we do know is that productivity is related very closely still to measured uh, uh, capital stock improvement, which embodies technology and that relationship with labor. We do know that. That hasn't broken down. Uh, and uh, if you want to make a mismeasurement issue, it's not about you know, measuring the residual of productivity. It's really, you, you, you have to go and say, look, we're mismeasuring investment. I mean, capital we're stock. Mis exactly. We're mis mismeasuring investment into capital. Who right. do we blame for that? Well, I mean, some people have looked at uh, the government, obviously, to, 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 to the statisticians there. They haven't captured perhaps various price deflator moves over the past few years with the rapid change in technology. And, and there's been a lot of research put out there. I think all, all of that probably explains a little bit, but it's by no means can explain the full amount of the disappointment in productivity. Uh, and that's why I think you have to then go and, <clears throat> and accept that uh, you would, I mean, even the, during the productivity miracle years, of the uh, late 90s when they revised the data there's no there, there, there were massive revisions <clears throat> and all they did was affect productivity by perhaps you know one percent at most i mean we're talking about a, a shortfall in productivity of at least two if not three percent uh, from what we might have expected and i think to answer that question you have to basically say somehow we are overemploying people relative to whatever that investment path that we're on is and and uh, that overemployment is it because companies are just very risk averse is it because there's some incentive structure being given <clears throat> through the financial sector uh, to encourage them to employ people with a hope that leads to higher demand rather than, than front-run it by doing even more investment. I mean, Mike, I think this is just extraordinary. We're out of time, Mike McKee, but it really speaks to the underlying theme at your Jackson Hole of how do you jumpstart productivity? It's, a, it's going to be a, t a, a real question for uh, the central bankers, and they're not just from the Fed. There's also... Uh, 
Kuroda-san from the Bank of Japan, Benoit Carré from the ECB, and others yeah. from other central banks, and they're debating how do we model this new future world and how do right. we fit monetary policy into yeah. it? Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Well, I am here uh, in Montana. Uh, officially, I think the map says we are in the middle of nowhere, and it is a beautiful nowhere. This is the first, we hope annual, first annual Camp yeah. Kotak West. David I, Kotak getting together economists and Fed officials to sit around and talk about the economy. And well, I, I'm not yeah, impressed. It is a gorgeous set. Not, Michael. <laughs> you're not, not, you weren't invited is what you're you. complaining about. <laughs> well, what was that sound? I didn't hear that sound in Montana. <laughs> 1955. That's the grizzly bear. 1955. Record Montana cutthroat trout. 16 pounds. What are you guys doing out there? Well, we caught it, Tom, and we released it, so it's oh. here for you to come visit. Okay. It's a little older now, but uh, and, and moving slower, which is good for you, Tom. Uh, David Kotak is, of course, the, uh, the, the, the founder, principal, and chief investment officer of Cumberland Advisors. And uh, this is the, the second kind of site you've set up for this sort of thing. Uh, for the people who aren't uh, completely familiar with it, what, what is Camp Kotak? What are you trying to do? Well, we, we gather people together from economics, financial markets, various businesses and we are able to talk among ourselves in an informal setting and also we do a little fishing of course and we pick nice places and we talk about the world and so we decided given all the attention on the fed we needed to get close to them so we came within two hours of jackson hole and found a place where we can get close to the fed unfortunately it's a little more than two hours now because of the forest fires we've been talking about that this morning yeah. uh we do sit around and, uh, you know, I, I, I participate as well and, and talk about the economy. And I know um, you've been doing that for a couple of days. What's the most interesting thing you've heard or learned or, uh, uh, or argued over the past couple of days? Well, uh, two things uh, really jump out this morning. The first is this news item that eight reserve banks have now called for a discount rate hike. That's a symbolic way for a regional bank to say to the Board of Governors, hey boys, it's time to move, or boys and girls is what I should say. And we are up to eight. The indications are when you get to that kind of a number, a Fed hike is going to come. Now, whether that'll be acknowledged in Jackson Hole or not, we'll see. That's item one. The second thing is we've been talking about LIBOR, and LIBOR spreads against Treasuries are widening. A year ago, the LIBOR was 30 basis points, three-month LIBOR was 30 basis points, now it's 80. The Fed has only raised rates a quarter of a point, but LIBOR is up a half a point. Begin to say, what does that mean? And here in the gathering, we have a number of folks who are in commercial real estate, residential real estate, multifamily, and they are all tied. All those loans are tied to LIBOR, and their costs and interest costs are rising. 
and that leverage in commercial real estate is now a concern. I know, Tom, we have talked about that on the show recently with a number of people trying to figure out (coughs) exactly what's driving uh, the LIBOR rate higher. Well, some is money market rules, and I don't hear too much talk about uh, concern about the short-term market, but David Kotak, Dominic Constum, is adamant that the shift in central bankers is from data dependency and the other mumbo-jumbo. They're going to start talking about financial instability. Translate that. What do they mean by that? Well, I, I think that's an issue. Um, th- this focus on what are the impacts of of central bankers' decisions, and separately, what are the impacts of rule changes? And the rule changes are huge, and my view is they're being ignored. The markets are complacent about changes in rules. This is a regulatory change that come out of Dodd-Frank and all that. Yes. So we're going to have two types of money market funds. You've talked about that in the United States. We are only six weeks away from that. When we do, there will be those that will service the private sector, LIBOR-based, and those that are in Treasury bills and don't break the buck. We have Basel III, which is reconstructed, what banks have to do. And these complicate, these are very complicated structures, and they are impacting the stability of the financial system because they are widening the credit spreads. Widening credit spreads for me, Tom and Mike, mm. are a warning bell. They are a yellow light. They say, watch out. You never have a crisis yeah. without having first preceded it with widening right. credit spreads. David Kotak, very quickly here, are you fully invested even with uh, the ballet of the summer of 2016? Uh, no. We went to cash reserves within the last two weeks, and we have taken them up. And we had a great run. We had a great run right after Brexit because we had an entry. And we have peeled back positions, and we have cash reserves in place, and we think interest rates, generally speaking, mm-hmm. are bottoming or have bottomed. Well, to the two of you, best of luck and good travels to Jackson Hole. Uh, Michael McKee, I've been looking at Western Montana memos. If the bear charges, your first option is to remain standing. The bear, the bear may bluff charge or run past you. <laughs> As a last resort, assume a cannonball position and play dead. Maybe, Mike, that's what Cherry Allen will do in Jackson Hole. <laughs> well, certainly when she sees the press coming. Tom, Mike and I are exchanging how fast we can run. We have decided it's not outrunning the bear, of course. It's who can outrun each other that yep. counts here. <laughs> Uh, David, if the bear charges, they rec- the, the, uh, the authorities recommend carrying a cayenne pepper spray for you. You can <laughs> sprinkle paprika Thank you. across the field. David Kotak, watch out for Grizz. From Montana, <laughs> from New York, this is Bloomberg. FHFA house price index comes in a touch below analyst expectations, a two-tenths rise. Mortgage applications were down 2.1%. It is definitely housing week. Yesterday, a 12% rise in new home sales, really surprising analysts who had forecast a two-tenths percent decline. Today's number, existing home sales, their forecast to be down 1.1% to a 5,510,000 annual rate. Will we get a surprise today? Well, here with us at Camp Kotak in the mountains of uh, Montana, 
is Doug Duncan. He's the chief economist for Fannie Mae. Um, is it harder to come up with a forecast for what's going to happen in the summer months when people go on vacation? I mean, spring is the selling season. Right. And now we're kind of getting into where you have to seasonally adjust the numbers to figure out what's going on. Yeah, it's uh, people buy homes according to the pace of their life and typically families who have kids that are school age like to make the moving plan early in the summer so that they're in position for school. Uh, and it takes a little time to close mortgages and move families and stuff. So we're past the seasonal peak. There's an interesting question on the seasonality related to demographics where now you have a younger age cohort that may, may be moving into ownership and might not have the full-sized families and, and so the kinds of properties that they're buying might be a little bit different. But it is, you really do have to follow the seasonal patterns. So the, these numbers are consistent with our forecast. Our forecast for the year is new home sales up about 11%, house prices up a little north of 5% across the course of the year, existing homes up about 3.5%. So none of this is uh, surprising to us. The new home sales number was higher than people expected, but those numbers get revised uh, pretty significantly in subsequent months. So we're not ready to say this is a breakout. Well, it, the, the question we've been asking, I mean, people have been talking about it here uh, at Camp Kotak West, and people are talking about it, and we've been talking on the show, we're seven to nine years into the recovery, depending on, on when you count the beginning. Has housing gotten back to normal? Uh, we would say that to that no. Um, there's a couple of different ways you can look at that. We, we look at the ratio of existing homes to new homes sold. And for 40 years, there were 5.5 existing homes sold per new home sold. Today, that ratio is down from 15 to 8.5, roughly. So until it gets down to 5.5, from our perspective, we won't be normal. Yeah. Another way to look at that is the new home construction per 1,000 households which the, uh, the rise in new home construction is only up to the bottom of the two previous right. recessions. So the big question today is supply, particularly at the yeah. entry level home uh, level. The statistic so what, the reason you're seeing these 5% price increases is there simply isn't supply at the low end of the market. In some California markets, one month supply. Yeah. Normal uh, is five and a half, six months. Doug, uh, you went right where I want to go. Uh, Miles Odlin over at BI uh, quoted Ralph McLaughlin of Trulia. The number of starter homes has declined 44% in the past four years. You're one of the straightest talkers on this I know. What is the public policy prescription to bring housing back to America from being a rich guy's trading sport? Well, I think the, uh, if you talk to people... Uh, in the, that are in the food chain that creates homes. What you find is for people that buy land and prepare land for construction, costs are up tremendously based on local uh, uh, and national factors, things like environmental development fees, uh, local uh, assessments for support of things like schools and things like that. A, a significant increase in regulation. Part of it's a response to the crisis where Communities saw significant vacant homes and all of the problems that come with uh, large swaths of vacancy. So part of it's a local response, part of it's a national response. If you talk to, to builders, the, it's ac the share of them that are reporting uh, access to skilled labor as their biggest problem is actually increasing. 
And if you think about it, if you're trying to increase supply, so each company's trying to expand, the, the more you try to expand, the more you're going to need that skilled labor. And there, it simply isn't, uh, it takes time to build that part of the, of the process, and that's the biggest constraint for the builders. So from a public policy perspective, deregulation is going to be something that you're going to hear. The, the uh, question about uh, permissions for development uh, and, the, and the permitting process, that's going to be part of what you're going to hear. Do we want to spur housing, or spur home ownership rate higher, given what happened in the early aughts? Well, I think, I, I think the best public policy with regard to what's the proper home ownership rate is it's the home ownership rate at which everyone who is credit qualified, in other words, has the financial wherewithal and has demonstrated the credit management behavior and wants to own a home, can own a home. So it's, it's kind of that simple, which implies not really a subsidy structure to it, but rather simply uh, people who are willing and able are able to get access to buy a house. Are, are we, uh, what progress has been made on the uh, the access to credit part? I mean, it's, it's been very hard for people to get loans. You had to have a really high FICO score. Is that improving? Well, there's, uh, there has been some easing, but not dramatic easing. Uh, we survey lenders on a quarterly basis, and for a couple of years, uh, they were saying, yes, we intend to, and we did see some easing of credit standards. That's sort of flattened out now. So I think uh, lenders have gotten to where they think the regulatory process will accept uh, the limits of credit easing, so I don't, I don't see a lot of that going forward. That's a frustration to some people, um, and you're going to hear a discussion of that, I think, continued. Uh, that's, a, that's a flashpoint between uh, the uh, folks who are focused on safety and soundness and the focus on uh, access to credit. So I think you'll continue to hear that discussion. But uh, I think you've seen some easing, probably not a lot more coming in the near term. The next president, whomever it is, is going to be confronted with the idea of tax reform. And the biggest tax break that is in the center of every debate is the home mortgage deduction. Do you think that really becomes an issue, or is that so widely used now, uh, or, or so um, embedded in the home ownership process that we're not going to see that go away? Uh, I think it's unlikely that you would see it eliminated. I, I think it's somewhat more likely that you could see it uh, curtailed at the limits. Uh, for example, uh, some, there's been some discussion of eliminating the deductibility of uh, home equity loan interest payments uh, or the maximum size of mortgage on which you can uh, deduct interest expenses. So those, are, those would be more likely to get some discussion, but it's it's embedded sort of in the middle class, if you will. Um, one of the interesting things is it's often sold as an entry, a first-time homebuyer advantage. But in fact, most people are, who are first-time homebuyers, particularly lower-income households, don't itemize. And so it actually is of no benefit. You can actually look at the, at the tax rolls and see that lower-income households don't itemize, and therefore they don't use the mortgage interest deduction. Yeah. So it's not really a, a, a spur to, uh, to, for entry-level right. housing. Doug Duncan, thank you so much uh, with Fannie Mae. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, with Perspective on Housing. Mike McKee, what do you do when the show's over? Like, do you have your trout, like, what do you call them, waiters? Do you have them on right now? 
on and ready to go, Tom. I got to put on wet shoes this morning, which is always Do depressing. You? But I mean, it's part. I mean, of the Pim issue. Fox and I, the closest Pim Fox and I have ever come to fishing, is that pond in Central Park that's in all the Woody Allen movies. Like Pim, basically, <laughs> Pim, you, you know, that, that pond has that lake or whatever they call it has to be in every Woody Allen movie. It, it, it does. But I got to say, no, that's not. I actually uh, lived, used to live in Bozeman, Montana. So I'm very Did familiar you? with the Yellowstone. Oh, you're right down the road. And so on. And I just got to tell you, there's a big problem there because uh, there, there are no fish. There's a yeah. parasite. They have a parasite. You're, Michael McKee, you're way up on this. Yeah. See? I, I am yeah. dazzled, Michael McKee. I didn't McKee, say I caught that, anything, but I was there. The, the Pim Fox of Midtown Manhattan is totally up to speed on the serious issue of parasites uh, in Yellowstone uh, River. Michael McKee in Montana and Wyoming. Mr. McKee rumored to be heading towards Wyoming. We will continue tomorrow. We need you here tomorrow on economics, finance, and investment. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.